This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to 3RRR's Radiotherapy. Someone asked me the other day, what is radiotherapy all about? My mind went blank. It's all things health, mental and physical. We'll have a crack at anything. I know. It's a box of chocolates you'll never know what you might get. A fruit salad, eclectic madness. Today's show is just like that. McZiff is going to tackle leadership. What is it? What's happened to it? Helping with this discussion will be Senator Richard Di Natale. Can't wait to hear what his perspective on this issue is. SK is going to delve into Louis Body Dementia and Robin Williams. What's the link? You'll need to listen in to find out more. Me, the tallman, I'm going to look at big data and health. What's all the fuss about? So, come on, have a sneaky listen in with us and the wonderful Kent here on 3RRR's Radiotherapy. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Good morning, gentlemen. You use the term loosely. I do, <laughs> very loosely. Dr. Anabolics is on leave. What's she up to? Ah, uh, naughty weekend with her husband. Uh-huh. She's allowed to do that. Yes, yeah, she is. She is. She needs a break. Hmm. Well, and I'm sure, I'm sure she's listening. Yeah, I'm sure she's listening. Yeah, she'd be listening. And, and Anabolics, we miss you terribly. Yeah, we, it's not the same without no. without her. I'll tell you, you too. Both of you not shaved. It's just disgraceful. We got our uh, we got our uh, our cheat sheet from um, um, the studio from radio from Triple R, I should say, uh, about uh, Radiothon, which gives us the number of subscribers we uh, we got and how we were, how we're tracking. Uh, but we also in the digital era, this is big data for you. Um, we get a, a readout of uh, people that have rung in and left messages for us, and <laughs> it's fascinating to to reread some of these messages because you sort of don't quite get them during the heat of radio radiothon. And there's one guy from uh, Huntingdale who who goes, "Bring back McZiff." Well, look, I tell you, Andrew, he never left. It's <laughs> <laughs> a wonderful thing to be so noticeable. Yes, look at this, and and you get a gig as well because uh, SK because someone. Please give some more character analysis of TV and movie characters on radiotherapy. So, you know, you, you, you're being encouraged to continue. Uh, uh, do you, do you, you know, there was a message during Radiothon where there was a listener who wanted to come in and have my baby. Yeah, no, I'm coming to that. I'm coming oh, to that. Okay. It's here, it's here. I think so, Billy Connolly rang once and asked for his accent back. Correct. <laughs> That's yes. right. No, um, so Natalie fr- was calling from Sweden, and uh, calling from Sweden says, I stayed up just to listen. I love you guys. Um, and then uh, uh, subscribing only to McZiff. <laughs> I'd like to have his baby. I'd like to have had his babies if circumstances worked out differently. Ooh, there's a story. And, and I want to say that I've been waiting outside the studio for the last six weeks since Radiothon finished, and nobody's turned up to take me away. Look, but the one, I, the one I, I loved the most was from Joanne, who um, we can help with most things, but Joanne rang in and subscribed to Radiotherapy. And was requesting a body part. She wants some breasts. So, uh, look, we'll try, but I don't think we can deliver. No, it was very interesting. And it's, a, it's our opportunity, actually, to thank all the people that actually rang in and, and subscribed to uh, Radiotherapy specifically, but also to 3RRR. Don't uh, marinara ring in and get people to subscribe to specific fish? We they do. Get people to subscribe well, no, they to give them a fish name. Parts. They give them a fish name. Okay. Yeah. And uh, moving right along, uh, good men. I've come across a book uh, which I think our listeners might be interested in. It's titled uh, He'll Be Okay, Growing Gorgeous Boys into Good Men uh, by Celia uh, Lashley. Um, and it's a it's a really good read. It's readable. It's not it's not jargonised. It's readable. But I I just this this will give you a taste for how she writes. And I'm going to I'm going to read a, a paragraph. At a father's and son's breakfast held recently at one of the schools that had participated in Good Man Project, 
I gave the boys sitting alongside their dads a piece of advice. When your mother asks, asks you what happened this morning, what was talked about, tell her that all she needs to know is that you and your dad were here together. You had breakfast and you listened to me talk for a while, OK? That's all she needs to know. I was there, Dad was there, end of story. It was men's business, your stuff. If she goes on about it a bit, try getting, uh, trying to get you to tell her what I said, whether you said anything or your dad said anything, what else, what else anybody else said, just tell her she doesn't need to know. Say it again, it was men's business. As I said that to the group in front of me, I could see the looks between the boys and their fathers and between the men in the room. Looks that, if translated into words, would probably have said something like, you have got to be kidding. So it, she's, she's onto it. She's really onto it in this book. So we'll try and post this on our uh, Facebook page. We need Dr. Anabolics to do that because she's the only one that can. Um, so it's He'll Be OK, Growing Gorgeous Boys into Good Men by Celia Lashley. Uh, good read. Good read and very much on our theme of uh, good men. Just another plug. We had uh, the Nobel laureate uh, Peter Doherty in the studio during the year and it's timely. He wrote a book uh, which we talked about uh, called Pandemics, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's, a, it's written in, again, lay language. It's a great book, discusses Ebola. Um, and it's somewhat, he's somewhat reassuring in the book about Ebola being uh, its, its potential for a pandemic. But... Um, it, it is timely uh, with the Ebola outbreak, and uh, I must admit I have delved back into this book to uh, to check check my knowledge. But it's uh, it's worth it's worth a read. You know, it's interesting in, in relation to Ebola. If you look at the three um, countries most affected, so Liberia, Sierra Leone, and uh, I think Guinea, I think yeah. all three of them had their health infrastructure along with other infrastructure uh, run down if not destroyed by the um, political instability and civil wars I heard a very distressing thing in Liberia um, over the last 10 years the number of functional um, medical specialists so so on the ground medical specialists who could deal with a crisis um, dropped from about 3,000 to somewhere in the 30s or 40s, um, and this dramatic um, brain drain of uh, tertiary-educated people leaving the country because of the political instability there. So if you lose your infrastructure, then you are so vulnerable to anything like this getting out of hand. I mean, we're only really one step away from things taking, from things becoming chaotic. Mm. So in some respects, we are protected here by the, the, the sanctity of our infrastructure. Yes. But it's a timely lesson. Yes, it is. On, on a lighter note, and sorry to divert from the seriousness of the topic, but you mentioned uh, Peter Doherty is a Nobel laureate. I, I have the honour of working alongside an Ig Nobel laureate. Oh, really? Support. Yeah. <laughs> and for those of you who aren't familiar with the Ig Nobel Prizes, they're handed out each year in Harvard for pieces of research which have been so meaningless as to constitute a, a minimal contribution to the advance of medical knowledge. And past winners include uh, Karl Krasniewski, uh, who analysed the contents of belly button fluff and won the, the Nobel, <laughs> Ig Nobel Prize for medicine one year. A researcher from my department called Matt Lewis uh, used to work with a group of neurologists, and he was looking at the relationship between pain and cognition. And, of course, if you uh, subject all of us to enough pain, our cognition goes out the window to a degree. But Matt and his colleagues wrote a paper that was published on the cognitive effects of having a full bladder. And uh, that was nominated for the Ig Nobel Prize and got up several years ago now. Look, I'm all for it. I reckon that's a We used to talk about these sort of things. Um, The... The Vegetarian Personality book was a series of articles of such meaninglessness. Um, and one of my favorites was Psychotherapy of the Dead, and, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, which is quite effective, yeah, um, yeah, although yeah. you don't get paid. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Free Triple R.
We have the pleasure of um, a return visit from Senator Richard Di Natale, Green Senator for Victoria. Now, if anybody ever listened to um, Senator Di Natale's maiden speech, they would have got what I would suspect is probably one of the best maiden speeches in the history of Parliament in its ability to translate who he was as a person. And I thought demonstrated incredibly good initial leadership. However, the promise of that hasn't um, hasn't been fulfilled, Richard, has it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure. I was about to say thank you for that lovely introduction, but I'm not quite so sure now. Yeah. So <laughs> no, it's a tough, it's a tough business. It's a it, tough business. It is a tough business, and we've got to keep chipping away. Yeah. Well, we said to you when we first interviewed. I think you were just about to sort of enter the Senate, and it, you know, life was full of promise, and you you were optimistic and had a lot of energy and leadership clearly is a is a central issue i mean, I mean politicians are leaders uh and we we thought we said initially we would touch base with you again after a period of time to see how you were traveling and this is the time that we're touching that base so h- how's it been um well it's been a lot of things it's been uh exciting frustrating um fulfilling um, sometimes um, incredibly, you know, disappointing. Um, you know, it's, it's like many other professions, I suppose. There's nothing... Uh, there are very few people who can uh, speak about the work that they do in universally positive sort of uh, tones, but um, overall it's been, you know, an incredible privilege to be able to do what I'm doing. And Politics is, it's not perfect, it's a, it's a long way from it, and particularly at the moment, I think at the moment people are crying out for some vision and leadership, but, you know, you've got, you've got a couple of options, it's always been my, my approach, you either sit at home and, and get frustrated and be a commentator from the sidelines, or, or you get stuck in, and, and I chose to get stuck in, and I'm, we've made progress in some areas, and we're chipping away at others. Mm. Uh, McZiff here, Richard. Uh, I'm just wondering, you you just made that comment then that people are crying out for some sort of vision and leadership, and we've been talking a lot about this on the show in recent weeks. Do you think it's possible, from a pragmatic perspective, for there to be that type of visionary leadership? Yeah, I think it's absolutely possible. Then why Um, doesn't it happen? Well, because I think there are a lot of forces that pull pull you in the opposite direction and you know these are reasons they're not excuses because i think ultimately i mean it's a test of uh, an individual as to whether they're able to rise above all of this but the whole uh, you know westminster system is set up to be an adversarial one where we sit across uh, each other in the chamber yelling insults the um the, the media is is constructed in a way that I can stand up and, and say 10 positive things, put forward a whole range of policies that, um, uh, you know, are on issues that I care about. Um, but the moment I stand up and am critical of an opponent, that's the, that's the interesting bit for the media because it's conflict, and conflict is, is effectively what um, sells stories. Um, me standing up there and articulating what I'd like to see in healthcare and, you know, my vision for universal health or... Um, the need to tackle climate change is not as interesting as uh, me standing up there criticising, you know, Tony Abbott or, or Julie Bishop on a bowl or whatever it might be. And so you you have a, a range of forces that pull you towards, um, if you want to be heard, to be critical, to sound like you've got nothing constructive to say. And so you've got to look at ways of rising above it. And so, of course, there's this, so, this whole thing about politics as sport as well. You know, people, particularly the, the sort of political analysts and commentators, they they're, they're much more interested in this, in politics as sport rather than in politics as ideas. And, and that's one of the things you've really got to overcome. So, do you, as a consequence of that, find yourself becoming a more of a political animal? Do you have to? Do you have to be like them to actually well, work? Well, I think. The short answer is you find yourself becoming more political, but the real challenge is knowing when you're crossing the line. I think to operate in that environment, you've got to be able to, to some extent, play the game. But um, you've got to also be very clear about who you are, what you stand for, and what lines you won't cross. So, you know, I've realised that to be heard, sometimes I have to be more critical than I'd like to be. I have to um, be a little more... 
sensationalist than I'd like to be. Uh, the, the evening news is constructed in a way that it's the five-second grab that's going to get make the headlines, not a thoughtful uh, speech I've given at a, at a conference, and so I've just got to accept that and play within those rules. But, again, I think the test of leadership is to be able to recognise that and to really push at the edges as, as hard as you can, and, and that's, what I, that's what I try to do. Um, and uh, sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not. Um, I think the other thing also is there's a tendency in politics now for it to become a much more managerial uh, profession, that this whole sense of being driven, you know, because you've got a strong set of ideas, values that you want to see um, implemented, it's that sort of... Um, really become uh, much much more difficult and what you find is politicians who have spent their time in a in a you know, politician's office working their way up as staffers and so on finding themselves as ministers and ultimately trying to manage a set of competing interests rather than having a strong sense of who they are what they stand for and what they'd like to see implemented and for me that's what politics is about it's about having a, a vision of the world um, and doing what you can through um, the political system to see that come to fruition, and I don't see it as a as a sort of managerial task where you've got, you know, stakeholder X on one hand, stakeholder Y on the other. Both have got competing views, and your job is to try and find some path that makes both of them happy. I, I think it's a it, 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 at its best, it is about having a vision for uh, the world, having a strong set of values, and you only need to see the response to Gough Whitman's uh, funeral to know that, you know, he was only there for a few years, but gee, he, he had a legacy that was was a lasting legacy and one that many of us now, you know, are the beneficiaries of. Richard, it's uh, Dr SK here. You, you've spoken this morning about the theatre of politics and politics as sport. Is it like that behind the scenes as well? I mean, I, I bring to mind this image of an old Warner Brothers cartoon where you had the sheepdog and the coyote <laughs> yeah. and they clocked on and it was all uh, congenial and as soon as they yeah. clocked on, it, they were at each other's yeah. throats, they clocked off and everything was fine again. Is it like that behind the scenes well, not, and do you, you have know, to put on this public face and do most of the work behind the scenes after the uh, yeah. Houses have actually closed. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's exactly the analogy that I that I use. I've said that to a number of people. Unfortunately, most of them don't re remember the cartoon, but that's exactly what it's like. And you have this, you know, you walk through the screening at Parliament House through the security screening area, and it feels a bit like that. It feels like the was it Ralph the Sheepdog? That's I right, Ralph, Ralph and Sam, and Ralph and Sam. Yep, Ralph and Sam. That's <laughs> right. And uh, and so you'll be there, and I'll, I'll walk through there, and there'll be Senator Abetz on one side, and there might be. You know, Senator Wong on the other, and we'll walk through, good morning, behind the scenes, have a few committee meetings. The moment you walk in, and question time is the word, I, I think it represents everything that's wrong with politics, actually, because that's what, uh, that's how politics is represented in the um, mainstream media, and uh, it is, um, it's it's the worst form of theatre. Uh, and, and it is a bit like that. You, you're, you're at each other's throats, you walk out of there, you have a joke, uh, because it's a workplace. I mean, ultimately, these are peers that you're working with, and particularly in the Senate, where there's this Senate committee system um, that, that is, is one of the sort of powerhouses of the Senate, where ideas are discussed and thrashed out through the Senate committee process. And you're working with people on all sides, and you're often travelling to remote areas, so you'll be sharing accommodation, transport and so on. And if you don't have a professional working relationship, then makes your job much harder. And the people who I think are most successful are the ones who are able to manage that uh, tension between you know, having a very positive and cordial professional environment, um, but when they need to, we're able to step up and, and make a political point. So, so on that issue, thankfully nobody's listening. So you can actually tell us... You know, who, who, are, who do you aspire to? I mean, if you look into Parliament and you say, look, this person is, is, is a real package... Yeah, it's a good question, and there are very few of them, I have to say. Um, that was my you know, fear. One of, yeah, one of the one of the sort of uh, anxieties I had before I took on the job was whether I, you know, coming from a non-political environment, coming from a medical, having a medical background, and going into a an arena that was so far removed from my own professional experiences that I, I just wouldn't be able to manage. But it doesn't what, take long. what about surgeons, though? 
Well, what, the less said about surgeons, the better. But, okay. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, the point, the point that, you know, it was only a few months that um, you realise that there are a lot of people there who are effectively on their re- retirement sort of package. They've spent time as a successful businessman within the coalition and been donors and are rewarded with a few years in the Senate or alternatively been on a union for a number of years and and aren't that interested in the job. So mm, mm. you do have uh, a lot of, I think, dead wood. I mean, that's, that's no, there's no other way to describe it. And there are very few people, I think, of um, who have the integrity and intellect that, I, that most of us want to see in, in Parliament. At, at least tell John, us one. John Faulkner, I think, is someone I, I, who's, who I always enjoy. I think he's, um, uh, he's, he's got a very a forensic you know, ability to be able to cut through the bullshit. Pardon the French. Um, Penny Wong's always, um, she plays it hard. She can be a bit tough sometimes, but um, she's somebody else, I think, who's, who who has been, um, uh, you know, someone I think that uh, demonstrates that you you can have a whole lot of things going against you, but if you're you're good enough, you'll be able to, again, cut through. There are people on the coalition side. I work well with Sharman Stone. She's, She's a coalition member of parliament who is not popular inside the government at the moment because she speaks her mind, and she's a she's a, a true small L liberal. There are not, not not many of them left in in the coalition. There are a few of them. I don't want to be mm. you know too disparaging, mm. um, but there are also too many people who are career politicians who've worked their way up through the political system, and you know effectively are are, are, um, are in there to try and you know, uh, work through um, policy issues, not on the basis of merit, but on the basis of trying to keep um, stakeholders quiet. And I don't mm. think that's that's a good thing. I, I think the power of, of vested interests and, and big money is, is um, one of the cancers in the, in the system at the moment. And your job isn't to appease them. Your job's to try and make an argument to bring the Australian community with you, to be far ahead enough of public opinion that, um, you can take the public with you, but not simply to reflect it. Yep. And I think that's what that's what leadership is, is, is recognising where the community's at, being far enough ahead of them that you can bring them with you, but not too far ahead that, you know, you alienate the majority of the community, and that's always the challenge. Richard, you know, you always want to be led by the head and not by the tail. In recent years, we've, we've seen the rise of these micro-parties, um, and, you know, we've seen that the Senate is very much uh, at um, um, being, being dragged along by these micro-parties. We've seen the, the PUP come into play, um, the, the driving enthusiasts, all of that. I mean, what, what is your take on this? Because there yeah. seem to be, you know, there's an argument for that as part of our democracy, but there's also, I think, a risk that we as a society are held hostage by very, very small uh, groups with, uh, with limited representation. So I think there are a few things to say. The first thing to say is minor parties only have an influence when the two major parties disagree. So there's, there's this sort of perception that a, that a minor party is able to inflict their, their uh, agenda you know, unilaterally on the community. But they've only got power when they side with either the Liberal Party or the Labor Party. Uh, so, you know, that's already a, a moderating influence built into the system. But I think, look, I'm conflicted about it. I think on one hand, the more voices we get inside the Australian Parliament, the better, because it is grossly unrepresentative. You only need to spend a bit of time in there to recognise that this the Australian Parliament doesn't represent the views and... Um, and people of uh, within the Australian community, it just doesn't. Um, but on the but, but on the other hand, you want a system that's democratic, and the current voting system in the Senate is not democratic. Uh, you can vote for a party who, that has a particular set of views. Their preferences shuffled through the preferences system to a party that has a completely opposite set of views, and you vote in, you, you end up voting someone in who uh, may in fact reflect the opposite to your own views. So we've got to fix the voting system. I think I think what we have to do is is reform the voting system in the Senate so that um, people who are elected are elected there on the basis of, um, of the fact that people want them there and, and they've been voted in, not because of arcane preference deals. Um, and we have to have a system that allows um, the multiplicity of views to be reflected. And I think that's what proportional representations, um, you know, an objective that that the Greens have, have always supported in that, you know, if you've got... We have in the lower house, for example, at 
depending on the election, but roughly 10% of the Australian community that vote for the Greens, and yet we've got half a percent of the representation in the lower house. Um, so you want a system that's that's broadly democratic, and I think proportional representation brings us closer to that. It's what we've got in the Senate, but then we've got the problem with the way Senate preferences are distributed, and that's just got to be reformed. Mm. Look, we, we probably need to let you go, but there, just a couple of things in finishing. One, um, breaking news, you're off to West Africa? Yes, I am. I'm heading off uh, next weekend. And I'm going to spend uh, a, a week there. Yeah. talking to uh, World Health Organisation people and a range of NGOs and to get a sense of what's going on, what they need, and uh, hopefully be able to come back and argue for that when I return. Yeah. And uh, would you, in on balance, happy to be there? Uh, oh, of is course. It, yeah, so you still... Look, it's, a great, it's a great privilege. It's, it's, I mean, I, I was lucky enough in the last parliament to implement... Um, there's dental reforms. Not many people know about it, but I worked with your government. You've now got um, a couple of million kids who are going to have teeth. Who can now go to their, medi- their dentist, yeah. hand over their Medicare card, and have $1,000 worth of medical care that they wouldn't have been able to get. Now, there's no way in my clinical life I would have ever been able to have an impact like that. Not to say, it's not to say that, that clinical medicine's not important, but for all the frustrations, for all of the disappointments, you do get to achieve things in politics that um, you're not able to achieve in other aspects of life. And, and I hope there's more of it. I yeah. just hope to be given the opportunity to do, to do more of it. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you back on. We're going to test you again in another Please. little while. Always, yeah. Enjoy, yeah. always enjoy it. And always I, enjoy it. I just want to finish with letting you know that my little boys still call you Farmer Richard. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for your time. I know how precious Pleasure. it is. Pleasure. Okay. Pleasure. All right. Pleasure. See you later. See ya. Bye. Ah, that was uh, Senator Richard Denatale, who, um, if you do get a chance to Google his maiden speech in Parliament, uh, it's a cracker, and it'll tell you exactly who he is. Uh, he it was it was very interesting. I listened to a whole host of maiden speeches uh, at the time, and uh, his was an absolute standout. It. Uh, very different, very different indeed. So, as if leadership, you know, let's, yeah. let's let's continue the theme. Look, I mean, I I, I think what, what a superb insight into the mind of uh, of an, an honest and genuine politician. That was yeah. I, I found that uh, yeah. totally riveting. Yeah. I, I was thinking, Tom, and I mean, as a society and individually, I think we hunger for for good leadership, and uh, I think uh, that hunger. Uh, is not being sated and certainly has not been sated recently. Um, but that hunger is why we embrace leaders. Um, we attach hope and expectation to them and we're drawn in by their promises. So when they make promises at the time, we actually believe them. And uh, then, um, you know, we, we, we find some leaders offer a great deal. So, so just on this issue, the psychology of this, and this is our link to our show, actually, is, is it's, it's how this impacts on us at a psychological level. But when I listened, and I'll use Obama as the example, prior to him becoming the President of the United States, when you listen to his oration and his, the way he conveyed ideas and his hopes and aspirations, you could not help but be, ah, gee, I want to be part of that. You know, that that that's resonating with me. There, there's a man that's thinking. Um, so there's there's that aspect of us, the, the charisma that we're attracted to because we want to be like. That's like in sport when you see Roger Federer hit a backhand. You look at that shot and you go, "Oh my God! If only I could do that." Yeah, and and look. There's an article in The Age this morning, um, Chris Berg, um, this beautiful paragraph he, he wrote there about, uh, about, about the upcoming Victorian election, and he said, and I'll, I'll quote, the certainties of the campaign ebb away, and when faced with the responsibility of government, um, there, it, it's inevitable, and uh, it's like a, a law of nature. So th- we, we, we make promises, and then the reality of being in charge and having to lead um, erodes 
includes those very promises that we make. But I wanted to talk more about the, you know, what's the impact of that? How does that affect us? You know, we know that there are some leaders who come along and who are like rock stars, and Obama was certainly one of those, and he still retains um, enormous popularity. You've just got to see him anywhere in the world, apart from in America. Except in America. Where he, where he, he leads. Now, he offers great leadership around the world, and I, I, I was totally mesmerized by him being here for the G20. Um, but, uh, you know, he goes back home and, uh, and he's in terrible strife there. Now, that may reflect, have something to do with what's going the battle between the White House and Congress over there. But Rudd came along, and uh, for whatever reason, a reason I, I, I certainly wasn't ever drawn to his personality, but he had that rock star influence as well, with enormous um, um, uh, the, the, the numbers of people who were who were in favour of him initially were extraordinary. I think they were called Ruddites. They were called Ruddites. That's right. And uh, and then reality intruded, mm. and uh, so he's and uh, he would not be considered at all popular now. So, what what we have. Um, and what politicians seem to understand is that they need to have a great deal of hype. Um, and uh, once the hype settles and the leadership process begins, um, the, the toing and there, there's this toing and froing relationship between the leaders and society. And you know, as, as a parent, you sort of find that as your kids get older, they come to see you more and more as uh, as human um, and fallible. Um, you know, where we start out on a pedestal, and uh, and because we are on that pedestal, um, we um, our kids will model us. They always will. So what what we do will in fact impact on them, and uh, it's only as they start to develop their own minds and their own worldviews that they will perhaps be able to see us more clearly and see that we have feet of clay, um, uh, uh, and uh, and. That is a really important process. Now, so most leaders, the majority of leaders, we, you know, they'll come in and there'll be a wave of popularity, and then the decisions that they make and the way that they act gradually erodes our feelings of, of trust in them. A really good leader is one who connects with us enough for us to be able to embrace them, us to feel comfortable enough with them that they've got their hand on the till, that they have got our best interests at heart. Tiller, not hand tiller. Hand, on, <laughs> hand <laughs> in the that, till that was, and on the tiller. Sorry, that, now that, that's really that's a Freudian slip because that was the next thing that I was going to say because when they become self-serving, which was my next line, and their hand goes from the tiller to the till, yes. that is... Um, that that is when we start to become disillusioned with them. We start to question. Wait a minute. Who are they in this for? They're not in this for us. They're in this for them. Mm. And therein lies the inherent problem. And I think that we end up in a situation which I think has um, affected us with this upcoming Victorian election, where there doesn't seem to be a lot of vision. There are a lot of promises, but the promises are the same as the ones that haven't been delivered on previously. And, and we become detached So do the right people, the right psychologically profiled people, are they the ones that are selecting themselves to put themselves up to be politician and leaders? That is, is it the nature of the position that actually create the people that want to do that are probably not the best people to do it? I suspect that the majority of people, and certainly the politicians who I've spoken with over the years, um, who have been candid in their interactions. I think people, by and large, get into politics for good reasons. Uh, I think they wish to do good. Uh, and then I think they get caught up in a, a process, a bureaucratic process, a party process, and I think that they have to form alliances and they have to make compromises, and I think that that their um, their ideals are eroded by the pragmatics of day-to-day decision-making in government, and that becomes very problematic. And I think that the, the people who can negotiate those troubled waters, the people who can retain their ideals and still offer visionary leadership are the ones who leave a lasting legacy that's, that, that is a positive legacy. What, when we talked about Whitlam, uh, the last time I was in here, and uh, you know, here was a man who 
uh, in a relatively short period of time, left this max, massive legacy of this, this, this of visionary leadership. Whatever you think about the the nature of the three years that he was in government, that he was in power, but he carried with him a vision for the future for Australia and for Australians that one could not get away from. And anybody who who um, uh, has had the who hasn't heard Noel Pearson's eulogy at Whitlam's funeral, do yourself a favor, Google that. It is the greatest individual speech of its kind that I have ever heard. And, uh, and that, to know that you have led and that you will be spoken about in those sort of terms after your passing, uh, that, I think, should be the guiding light to the current crop of leaders that we've got. Okay. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to 3RRR. We're going into our final segment. I think Big Data's going to get the flick till, till next week. With any luck. With any luck, yeah. yeah. It's such a riveting topic. But we're Louis Body Dementia and Robin Williams. Look, I was, I was prompted to explore this topic because, uh, as many of you will know, the, the autopsy report from Robin Williams was handed down just a couple of weeks ago, and it came... Uh, it's quite a surprise to many of us who might have been aware that Robin Williams is alleged to have suffered from a variety of psychological or psychiatric conditions throughout his life to hear that he was suffering from a form of dementia and the way in which it was described in the autopsy report was quite confusing to me. He was described as having uh, Lewy body dementia which was misdiagnosed as having been Parkinson's disease and there's a bit of a contradiction in that statement sure is. which I'll get to. But there would seem to have been little evidence during 2014 that Robin Williams was suffering from clinical symptoms of dementia because he was still working. Or Parkinson's disease. Well, who knows what his motor symptoms may have been. Because I guess you know better than most of us, tall man, that you know, the motor symptoms respond quite well to treatment early yeah. on. But when you've got a dementia, it's hard to hide that fact and keep working at a high standard in a demanding profession. And Robin Williams uh, was making films as recently as May this year when the one of the many sequels to Night at the Museum in which he featured finished principal photography that film's not even out yet so to be able to remember your lines and function in a a very demanding task as an actor would seem to preclude any possibility that he was suffering clinical symptoms of a dementia at the time Mm. he has been variously described as having uh, a number of ills over the years some of them he publicly acknowledged some of which were often speculated but never confirmed by Williams himself but uh, it was speculated widely that he suffered from bipolar disorder, for example. And uh, for those of us who've watched his work over the years and not necessarily limited to his films, but seeing interviews that he gave, the way in which he projected himself, whether it was a projection or reality, at times certainly conveyed a, a manic persona. The way his words would race, his thoughts would fly from one subject to another, he would bounce humorously off topics. You know, it's, if you had to videotape a scene of somebody who was suffering from a hypomanic episode at times, you would not unreasonably draw the conclusion. Now, now the term hypomanic, you know, that, that's a confusing term for most people. Oh, yeah. I, I guess it's a question of degree. If you think about depression, you know, many people get by with a minor degree of depression and it's not full-blown or what's referred to as clinical depression. And then there's the more severe form. It's the same with mania. If you have a full-blown manic episode, you really, at that point, lose the ability to have adequate control over your behaviour and your thoughts. You can become delusional, aggressive, irresponsible and completely disordered and unintelligible in your thinking. So hypomania is a state akin to mania or on the manic spectrum, but somewhat less. Yes. People yeah. are still contained and able to control their, their thoughts and the behaviour to a large degree. And, and would any of his um, uh, performances, could that have been drug-related, like as in he, he took something to amp himself up, like amphetamines or or something like of that variety? Well, well one of his publicly documented uh, psychological troubles, if you like, related to addictions to both cocaine and alcohol. Back in the 70s and 80s... He so so alcohol cocaine. would take him down. Cocaine might take him up. 
Yeah, and people who uh, suffer bipolar disorder and who have repeated manic or hypomanic episodes, they'll often use alcohol to self-medicate and try and bring themselves down. Uh, they talk about the average age of the diagnosis of bipolar disorder being 32, but the average duration of symptoms before a diagnosis is made is about eight years. Yeah. And during that time, people can often be misdiagnosed with primary drug and alcohol-related disorders that often are just an attempt to medicate their symptoms. But Robin Williams had been in and out of rehab a number of times for cocaine and alcohol abuse, most recently earlier this year for, for an ongoing struggle with alcohol. Right. What, just on an aside, this is, this is related to what I was going to talk about, but what if I told you that big data could predict that you were going to become manic? I would struggle to identify with that concept. It's like that idea of psychohistory that Isaac Asimov talked about. You know, if you look at a large enough population, you can make predictions about what might happen to a population. But I think big data in relation to an individual, I'd struggle to accept that. Okay, so next week when we talk about this in more detail, I'll, I'll, I'll discuss several issues relating to that where big data has actually done that. Well, that's a challenge for you, tall man. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> he says disparagingly. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll look forward to the discussion, as they say. For everybody out there, he just rolled his eyes. <laughs> there was a lot of speculation uh, following Robin Williams' tragic suicide about what might have been going on for him at the time. Uh, certainly his publicist is on the record of saying that in the, the months prior to his death he was suffering from a severe depressive episode. Mm. So this autopsy finding threw a bit of a spanner into the works as to what might really have been going on. So what is Lewy body dementia and how, if at all, is it related to Parkinson's disease? Uh, Parkinson's disease tends to attack people of Robin Williams' age. He was in his early 60s. And in most people, the earliest signs of Parkinson's disease are physical. They develop motor signs and symptoms. In fact, didn't he star in the film... Awakenings. Awakenings. Yeah, which is perhaps... It's ironic deeply, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, that was in the early part of his uh, career yeah. where he portrayed... Was it Oliver Sacks? Oliver Sacks. In that role? Who we've interviewed on this show. Yeah. <laughs> Who was the first to... Or one of the first to demonstrate that uh, dopamine and dopamine derivatives can be of help to people who are suffering from Parkinson's disease. Yeah. So, yeah, deeply ironic, if true. But the early symptoms in, of Parkinson's in most people do tend to be physical. They might uh, slow down physically. Their handwriting might change in size. They might begin to shuffle. They might have unexplained falls. They might develop a tremor. And technically, uh, you can't develop a Lewy body dementia unless the cognitive symptoms of dementia either precede or occur within 12 months of the onset of physical symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So it's a fine technical line between whether you diagnose a Parkinson's disease dementia or a Lewy body dementia. My own personal view is that these two conditions are on the same spectrum yes. and just uh, reflect in any given individual the relative distributions of the pathology. Yes. But uh, what is a Lewy body for a start? Uh, well, well if, we, if we break that down a little bit further... The under the umbrella of akinetic rigid syndromes, which is Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease with Lewy uh, body dementia, Pick's disease, uh, multi-system atrophy. So there are a whole lot of different disease subgroups under the one banner of akinetic rigid. And the akinetic means you don't move and rigid means that you're stiff. And so those th that group of disorders, which is a burgeoning group of disorders as our population ages, and we better get ready for it because we're going to get a lot more of it, um, this is, uh, why, this, we're now talking about a, a subset, a subset of those diseases when we talk about Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's disease. Absolutely. They're from a disease family. They're not, they're not unique. Yep. Uh, a Lewy body itself is something that you see when you stare down the microscope of a, of a brain taken from a person with Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia. It's what's called an intraneuronal inclusion body. It's composed of a particular protein called alpha-synuclein. And when you look down the microscope, it looks a bit like a fried egg, yep. a pink fried egg down the microscope. And they're the pathognomic hallmark, pathological hallmark of Parkinson's disease. You find Lewy bodies in a part of the brain called the striatum, which is deep within the centre of the brain. And as the disease progresses, you tend to see a migration of these Lewy bodies from the deeper regions of the brain to the cortex or the surface of the brain. And as that happens over a period of decades, 
if you follow individuals with Parkinson's long enough, they will tend to develop a dementia syndrome that looks like Lewy body dementia. Yeah. So, so in physiological terms, what, what we're probably seeing is these proteins would normally be in solution. That is, like a, if you dissolve salt crystals in water, you can't see the salt crystals. But as as the um, either if you get a saturation of the of the salt in the water, it'll crystallise out, and you'll start to see it again. It precipitates, hmm. um, and it's probably the same principle here: is that you've got a saturation of these proteins, which for some reason either they're not being cleared, and so they get to a concentration where they start to precipitate out, and that's when you see the Lewy bodies. Yeah, or they're a marker of some other disease process, and they become like the gravestone on the head of a deceased cell. Hmm. In, in Lewy body dementia, as opposed to Parkinson's disease, the distribution of the pathology in the brain tends to be reversed. You tend to have more cortical Lewy bodies on the surface of the brain early on in the disease and a relative paucity or a lower number in the deeper structures of the brain. So um, this is at some level quite fascinating, but what is the... Um, uh, <laughs> you just tried to find yeah, it at which yeah, level. Yeah. Okay. So, so, but, but, <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, I, I, that's a kick in the groin right there. Yeah, I, I'm sure that most of our listeners are, uh, are riveted. But, 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 but what, what I was interested in is with either Lewy body dementia or Parkinson's disease, does any, uh, do either of those conditions potentially explain what was happening with Robin Williams on a day-to-day basis? Can, it be, can they be attributed as the cause of his mania or hypomania beforehand or his, and his depression towards the end of his life? Okay, certainly not in terms of the mania on the basis of his longitudinal history. You know, these are dementia syndromes and neurodegenerative conditions that hit people in the later stages of their life. And if you view early footage of Robin Williams performing, you know, he, he had that hypomanic performance style to him uh, throughout his career, really, so well before the pathology could have been present in his brain. And, you know, if you accept it as being true that he had bipolar, he would have had recurrent episodes of mania or hypomania alternating with periods of depression. There is, however, a link between these disorders and depression. So to answer your question, uh, the answer is partly yes. Interestingly, the, the peak time at which people who go on to be diagnosed with dementia, and I'll use Alzheimer's disease as as an example, is actually about 18 months before the diagnosis of dementia is made. So in other words, depression can, in a minority of people, be a non-cognitive symptom of a dementia syndrome. And certainly there's very high rates of depression independently with conditions such as Parkinson's disease. They say about 50% of patients with Parkinson's will develop depression at some time. So there's something about the pathology that causes a disruption in the neurotransmitters that can lead to depression. I wasn't aware, however, of uh, any report of Robin Williams having had symptoms that might be suggestive of a Lewy body dementia. And the symptoms of this condition are quite unusual. They can involve uh, dramatic visual hallucinations, for example. That's a hallmark symptom. And these hallucinations are often very vivid and very real. I remember seeing a lady myself who had uh, Lewy body dementia and every night at about 7pm from behind her radiator would arise a figure of a young girl, uh, fully formed, and uh, this caused the lady no apparent distress. In fact, she developed a relationship of sorts with the young girl and laid the dinner table for her every night, and the only way that this lady came to clinical attention was when the the young girl failed to show up one night, so the patient wandered out in the street in her nightie with a torch looking for her, concerned for her safety. So very vivid visual hallucinations. I'm, I'm not aware that Robin Williams experienced those. Another of the core symptoms of Lewy body disease, however, are motor symptoms that can resemble Parkinson's disease. So patients with Lewy body dementia can slow down physically and develop one of these akinetic rigid syndromes that you've mentioned, Tallman. Yeah. Uh, the third key symptom perhaps is a tendency to fluctuate dramatically in your cognitive level. And my opening point was that I felt it unlikely that Robin Williams was suffering a clinical dementia syndrome at the time of his death on the basis that he was still working, still giving interviews, still able to memorise scripts and perform at a very high level in film, for example. So, uh, 
There were no actual autopsy results released about levels of uh, substances in his system. I know the autopsy came back negative for alcohol and drugs of abuse, but there were quote-unquote therapeutic levels of prescription drugs in his system. It's not stated what those actually are. You know, SK, it's been, I've been really struck by the extraordinary level um, of impact of, of Robin Williams' death on on all sorts of people, and a lot of my patients have, have commented about this. There's a desire to know what actually happened. We want to know why someone so loved would take their own life. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, everyone's had a theory or a series of theories. On the basis of, of I mean, and, you know, you can't know, but... On the basis of, of you know, the, all these thoughts about the Parkinson's, Lewy body dementia, bipolar, substance abuse, have you got a best estimate yourself? My best guess is that the, the dementia diagnosis and that of Parkinson's were probably a red herring. Uh, you've heard of Occam's razor. Mm. You know, when you hear uh, hoofbeats, don't think of zebras, think of horses. And uh, you've got a man with a, a long and well-documented history of mood disorders, uh, including severe depressions, compounded by substance abuse issues, cocaine, alcohol abuse, numerous stints in rehab. You know, those are enough and would be a far commoner causes of an eventual suicide than an autopsy finding of Lewy body dementia, of which he had no obvious symptoms, particularly in view of the fact that autopsy findings say nothing about whether you might have symptoms at all. Yes. We know in the, in the case of Alzheimer's disease, for example, that the pathology, the things that you might find in the brain at autopsy, is present at least 10 years, possibly 15, possibly 20 years before yeah. people actually develop symptoms. So he may have had the pathology in his brain that says nothing about whether or not he had clinical symptoms of a disorder. Absolutely, that's exactly my point. Was he probably this was an early finding and pathologically demonstrated the propensity to develop Lewy body dementia at a later stage? Maybe yeah. So I think his wife, his his, his wife, did uh, acknowledge publicly that in the year prior to his death, he had been diagnosed mm. with early Parkinson's disease. Mm. So whether he was showing motor symptoms yes. uh, seems possible. Yeah. Good show, guys. That uh, mm. leadership and uh, Dean Natalia. I, th- I think we might have met a politician there that might have the leadership qualities. Too bad he's in the grains. <laughs> wonder, whether, wonder whether he's ever sat down and had a beer with Ricky Muir. Yeah, exactly. I don't think so. Or Jackie Look, Lambie. Many thanks, gentlemen. Now, we will come back next week and we will talk about big data, whether you like it or not, uh, and we'll have a blistering show again for, for our listeners. So, In the immortal words of Mark Downey from the SBS, I can't wait for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see you then. Off to the scientists. La Grosse Radio pour des grands enfants. Triple RFM. Big radio for big kids, is that right? Oh, right, okay. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.